Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad to uh, have you with me today. I hope your day's been started off good. We're going to start with a conversation with Lucas Miles. He's written a book called The Christian Left. Now, you might think that's a political book, but it's not. It, uh, it is a book about how the liberal thought has hijacked the church. Now, Lucas just said he's done about 100 interviews in the last month. So let's bring him on for interview 101. Lucas, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Of course, when you see the title, The Christian Left, you go, uh-oh, so what is that all about? So maybe we should start there. Yeah, absolutely. So The Christian Left is really um, what I what I see as a growing constituency of believers, and oftentimes so-called believers, or maybe believers by name only, who have embraced liberal ideology, progressive philosophy, and oftentimes Marxist theory. And, and this has sort of produced a um, sort of a pseudo version of Christianity mm-hmm. that's really earmarked by uh, sort of a downgraded view of the Bible, uh, that it's something less than the Word of God. It's, it's no longer viewed as infallible, and as well as sort of an embracing of every in vogue, you know, moral, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, progressive idea that's out there today from LGBT community to uh, pro-choice views, uh, and oftentimes sort of this, uh, this socialist uh, version of Christianity that, that we see that might be, you know, also known as liberation theology or critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And so this is growing, it's gaining momentum, and we're seeing this no longer just in, uh, you know, isolated uh, pockets. We're really seeing this now in community churches, and I think it's something that Christians can be aware of, and I really wrote this book, The Christian Left, to help bring them back to uh, some sort of Christian orthodoxy. I like that. Uh, Lucas, has the church moved left, or has the left moved into the, moved into the church? I think both, uh, and and I think that's the only kind of fair answer here, because, you know, um, by no means is this simply just a uh, um, uh, some sort of strategic, you know, democratic agenda to, you know, to adjust the whole church. Although I do think that is happening, uh, it's not responsible for all of this. So the left is looking for ways to win elections, and they know that they can't win elections without really dividing the faith vote. So you're going to see a lot more messaging, as we've already seen this year, on you know uh, Biden's devout faith. You're going to see uh, terms like Christian and Catholic used to describe the current administration and some of their various players. And you're going to see terms like Protestant and and uh, evangelical to describe uh, those that the media want to paint in maybe a less than Christian light um, that are you know maybe uh, also Trump supporters or also conservative. And, and there's really sort of this um, uh, concerted effort to, um, to downgrade anyone who holds the Bible still in any sort of literal regard or uh, absolute authority position, and the left is making an effort. Simultaneously, I think over the last couple decades, the church has made an effort to reach more people, and so they have edited the, themselves in many cases— and, you know, you've seen where messages used to be preached uh, verse by verse throughout the Bible. 
now we have a lot of churches that are using one or two scriptures in a sermon. And and I think that although we're we're seeing you know we saw things like the seeker sensitive movement make a lot of converts, they didn't make a lot of disciples. And so this is kind of happening from both sides. It's really created this perfect recipe to introduce this progressive you know breed of Christianity. We're nodding our heads yes in the studio right now, just so you know. <laughs> in your book, you talk about the post-traumatic church disorder, which are people who have been wounded from their past and they feel compelled to search for ideologies, peer groups, political affiliations that seem to offer more acceptance and diversity of thought. I see that more and more. You know, I've actually had a few people get angry with me about using this term because they feel like it's it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, poking, uh, uh, you know, making light of those who have, you know, especially our, our you know, uh, fellow Americans who've gone through uh, maybe really post-traumatic, uh, post-traumatic tr- uh, stress disorder um, with things in the military. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, going through a church, uh, your life is not on the line, hopefully, and, and you don't have bullets flying across. But there is a stress that happens. And I've seen as a pastor, I started preaching at 17, I'll be 42 this year. Uh, I've seen people go through tremendously um, painful emotional experiences at church, so much so that it kind of causes them to push away from religion. Mm-hmm. Um what has happened, I think, as people, you know, you hear people say, I love God, I just hate the church. And I think what the Christian left has sort of provided is it's provided sort of this halfway house emotional place to where somebody can feel um, that they're on a spiritual journey without really having to deal with the accountability or the authority structure or or sort of uh, what they perceive to be a lot of the rules of church, which I think is a false understanding, but I think it's a common perception. Uh, and, and the Christian left has sort of solved that at the surface level for some of these wounded individuals. Um, in actuality, it's taking them further and further away from truth and leading them into, you know, these heretical beliefs. But I think that it's provided, um, you know, a, a what appears to be a safe place uh, for those who have been wounded in some of these situations by, you know, the traditional church. Very interesting. Lucas, talk about the way the left has done a pretty aggressive job of trying to redefine sin. So for the Christian left and for progressives and, you know, those who are, uh, you know, maybe um, include themselves in what would be known as liberation theology, which is sort of a mixture of Marxism and and, uh, Christian thought, um, sin has a completely different meaning. Sin on an individual level is almost non-existent. Uh, they don't believe in original sin. They don't believe that, you know, they're in the, what is known as the depravity of man. Um, what they believe in is really sin on a community level. And so they're going to talk about sin in regards to systemic racism, and that is the sin of the community in their minds. Uh, but when you start going, well, what about these individual things? Are those sins? And and that's just, you know, it's basically um, an argument that they would use to the circular reasoning that even if, if you try to point out individual sins over the the sin of the community, you are just part of the problem. And so <laughs> yeah. it's sort of this it's sort of this fence that they've drawn around this. So you can't address anything. You know, if you talk about, you know, people firebombing buildings, uh, well, you don't really have a right to say that because the sin of the community is is you know systemic racism or the sin of the community is this oppressive view against those you know uh, um, you know that uh, maybe aren't as privileged and so 
there's really no you know uh, concept of a biblical view of sin that we are as individuals separated from God and that we need a savior. You'll never hear you know Christian leftists you know like maybe uh, Pete Buttigieg you know who was the mayor of my city in South Bend, Indiana at one time. Uh, you'll never hear him talk about um, things like heaven and hell and redemption and forgiveness of sins and you know repentance. These things don't come into play because it doesn't play into the narrative of progressive ideology. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should uh, start with a couple of ways in which the left uses spiritual-sounding language. And yeah, so... We've taken some words and expressions, and how about Jesus would never get in the way of the love between two people? You know, we hear we hear statements like this on the left all the time, and they have made a real... Um, uh, you know, real strong effort to utilize language of the church that's recognizable and familiar in such a way to kind of push their agenda and, and sound more convincing. So as you mentioned, you know, Jesus would never get in the way of, of love between two people. Uh, you'll hear things like a real Christian accepts everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hear things like, you know, Jesus was a refugee. Um, you know, that God doesn't create walls that prevent people from coming to him, you right. know, in sort of a as a backhanded way to uh, to dig it, you know, at, at having uh, some sort of actual national border structure. Um, and, and so all of these are really attempts to um, use familiar language to hijack the message. Now, ironically, this is the same tactic that we saw in Nazi Germany. And I wrote about this in the book, The Christian Left as well. And that is that um, Hitler and, and the Third Reich, basically, uh, some of Hitler's cronies kind of saw that the church was a useful structure for propaganda. And so instead of just kind of, you know, running it over with the tank, they said, well, we can use this. And they basically put their own people in place. And they really started, you know, coercing these pastors and forcing them, you know, and threatening their families and things like that. And in exchange, they basically developed a form of Christianity that in, in German was called uh, positivist Christentum, basically positive Christianity. And this positive Christianity had all these sort of uh, outer makings of of what we know the gospel to be, uh, except for they removed anything that had to do with the spiritual life, with uh, the divinity of Christ, with heaven and hell, uh, with sin, all of this, and they really converted Jesus to being the great champion of the state rather than the savior of the world. And at a softer level, we're starting to see that same thing happen right now by the Christian left, and and that that Jesus is used as sort of a propaganda piece in order to push, you know, really Biden's administration's, uh, you know, objectives forward. Mm-hmm. Lucas, I know, I know you know people like this, because I know people like this, friends that have been solid believers for a long, long time, and all of a sudden they start telling you that they're okay with certain progressive things that have come into the church, and you kind of shake your head like, really? Uh, I, sadly, I do, and I've I seen too. it a lot. I've I've seen it with pastors, and I think a lot of people have. You know, this is this is something I would guess is going to ring true with a lot of uh, a lot of the audience listening today, and that is that you know we see the church, you know, drifting further and further left. I call this doctrinal drift. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we I grew up near Lake Michigan. We I, I give the example in the, in the book The Christian Left here that you know that that orthodoxy or kind of this right way of thinking about Christianity. It's sort of a lot like a buoy floating on on top of the water, and you know those buoys mark kind of outer limits and in, in the uh, uh, in the coastline and these things and where the uh, the tide changes and and basically it's a concrete block at the bottom and that has a cable to it with this this big float on the top and that buoy is able to kind of float along the surface 
And that sort that circle that that buoy makes as it floats along the surface. That's kind of what what Christian beliefs are like. We might have a different view on certain topics, maybe speaking in tongues or how baptism should be, you know, uh, executed or something like that. Uh, but when it comes down to it, we have the freedom in, in, to really kind of debate some of these passages in good Christian spirit. Uh, but we are still connected to the source of the truth, and that is Scripture itself. Um, the Christian left, what they have done is they've really disconnected themselves. Basically, that cable that holds the float, uh, their belief, to the, to the rock-bottom foundation of the Word of God has been severed, and they just sort of start drifting out in these divergent dark waters of progressive ideology. There's no way to kind of bring them back at that point, or it's very difficult to bring them back and for them to find their way back. And we've, we're seeing this. It's, it's very convincing because a lot of Christian elites and a lot of uh, Christian, you know, uh, media types and these things, they're sort of pushing the agenda further and further left. They've been enamored by this. And I think it's really impacted a lot of sort of everyday Christians out there and pastors. And of course, these pastors have been trained oftentimes in liberal Christian, you know, seminaries. And it's gone from that professor to the pastor. And now we're starting to see it in the pews. Very interesting. Lucas Miles is my guest. He's written a book called The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. We'll take a little break and be right back. Miles is my guest. He's written a book called The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Got a lovely, a lovely endorsement from Governor Mike Huckabee. He said the Christian left exposes the subversive threat that Marxist thought poses to Christianity and the global church. Every Christian needs to read this book. Pretty nice ringing endorsement there, Lucas. <laughs> yeah, I was very thankful for that one. Yeah. And uh, the book's actually hit uh, number one on Amazon in uh, three separate categories. So uh, for you. pretty awesome, the release so far. Wow. Uh, something you said earlier in the interview that stuck with me, that we may be seeker-sensitive at one point, but are we really making disciples? And and I think one of the concerns I have, are we being gospel-centric right now with our message? Uh, and it seems that the social justice platform is really taking center stage. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, that is something that a lot of people are feeling, and it's been very appealing. I mean, the social justice message at a surface level um, it's talking about helping people. And Absolutely. isn't that what we want to do as Christians, right? And Absolutely. So we, at a surface level, we can all get excited about that. But when you really dig into what's behind some of that, and, you know, this is, you know, if your church is out there having a feeding program or, you know, uh, teaching English to, you know, immigrants or something like that, that's not necessarily a social justice ministry. That is doing the work of the church. What makes it social justice is the belief structure that comes in behind that. And basically that God favors certain groups of people more so than others. In liberation theology, it states that God favors what is referred to as the most numerous class over anyone else, so much so that God hates anyone who is not part of 
this, you know, what is viewed to be this sort of more, you know, needy, uh, uh, lower income, you know, uh, socioeconomic level. And so the, the nature of liberation theology, I was actually reading a book this morning by a guy named James Cohn, who really wrote the book literally on, on liberation theology in America about 50 years ago. And his view, um, you know, so much so, he would say very clearly that the God of liberation theology and the Jesus of liberation theology is a separate Jesus than what the mm. church has worshipped for the last 2,000 years. He's very proud of that fact. But I think it, for, it just only further exposes the heresy and the fallacy that, that's involved in that movement. Mm-hmm. Lucas, talk a little bit, if you would, about some of the uh, Christian publishers and some of the authors that are that are getting lots of attention and almost the celebrity problem that's involved with the Christian left. <laughs> so this is the chapter I didn't want to write, you know, so I, I, know, I, I, I finished figured. the book, actually, and uh, gave it to a few people and had a really—a few trusted people came back to me and said, hey— you know what, this is this is exactly what the world needs right now, but you have to name some names. And I'm a nice guy, and I, I prefer <laughs> to you know let people you know just be smart on their own. But I, I really felt like I was doing a disservice. So we, we dove into that some more, and, and I wrote this chapter that's in the middle of the book called The Christian Cabal, and really looking at some of these um, players within the Christian media realm. And, you know, just so your audience knows, I've produced, you know, multiple, you know, faith-based, family-friendly movies. I've worked with a lot of different distributors and, and major companies. Uh, I've published, you know, multiple books now. Uh, I'm at the same conferences. We have a lot of the same mutual friends. And a lot of these guys I even know personally. Um, and, but what I'm seeing is this, this drift left and this drift away from a view where they hold the Bible to be infallible. And that's the biggest red flag for me is when we downgrade this view of Scripture. So there's a few publishers out there that have really made uh, you know, significant kind of focus. Even one of my former publishers, I just looked at their page uh, here recently, and almost the entire uh, you know, book slate that they have right now is on critical race theory, presenting it in a positive light. And, and, you know, we are seeing major, um, you know, even uh, Christian, you know, film studios that are ran by agnostics and atheists that, that the audience doesn't know. And they're still producing, you know, some semblance of a faith-based movie, but slowly that envelope is being pushed further and further. Uh, we've seen this a lot in Christian music of artists coming out, uh, you know, um, you know and, and other influencers, people like Matthew Paul Turner, who was uh, one of the editors, I believe, for CCM Magazine. Uh, you know, who got a divorce for his, from his wife, uh, announced that, you know, he, he believed that he was homosexual. And, and a lot of people in the, in the Christian, you know, community and some of his peers really championed him for his courage and his bravery in a moment like that. And I think these are things that, you know, for me personally, I would think other Christians are going to feel this way, is that, you know, we should be concerned about. And we really have to know what, what input we're taking in and make sure that the book that we're getting or the resource that we're picking up it's from a trusted source that still believes that the Bible is this infallible Word of God. Mm-hmm. Lucas, how is the woke movement making an impact on the Christian left? So the woke movement certainly goes hand in hand, and a lot of Christians are playing into that as well. Um, it's it's you know it's, it's really just sort of this this Gnostic thought sort of revitalized, and probably for sake of time, I don't have time to unpack that fully, but I mm-hmm. do a little bit more in the book. Um, and what we're seeing is that, you know, whether it be cancel culture or sort of this wokeism, um, it, it's really just empowering um, the left to be able to divide the church even further. And people are really, you know, uh, giving a, a significant uh, thought and, and commitment to these false doctrines. And I think we're seeing whole denominations of churches ripped apart by this right now. I, I know that God wins in the end, and I'm an optimistic guy that believes that, you know, 
uh, we're going to see the victory of Christ in this in this you know entire world. Um, but that doesn't mean the church in America always thrives. And so I wrote this book to really help people come back to orthodox Christian views, and by that I mean views that the early church held, views that Christianity has held for you know the centuries, so that we make sure that we don't get led astray. And, and really, you know, somehow uh, uh, begin to walk away from this faith that we've once held to. Mm-hmm. Lucas, I found your um, your chapter on vain imaginations. There was a, a called the God card. Would you talk more about that? Yeah. So there's a there's a tendency that people have any time that uh, you know because the the, per, the Christian left wants no personal responsibility, and that's sort of the whole nature of socialism in general, and sort of this this amalgamation of Christianity and socialism, and so. Anytime that somebody says something to them uh, to challenge them, it's usually met with, uh, well, God told me to do that. And it really becomes hard to argue with, you know. And so when we're using God and Jesus as the reasons, you know, for, uh, say, to justify a love between, you know, two people that are the same sex or uh, using that to justify open borders, using that to justify, you know, even uh, we're seeing the Christian left, um, you know, promote pro-choice and pro-abortion um, policies, so much so that they're going around praying for abortion doctors as they, quote, do the will of God uh, in killing these babies, uh, that becomes really concerning. And so um, we're seeing this this sort of uh, elitist spiritual, uh, you know, mindset um, really used to justify a lot of terrible, sinful uh, behaviors that are completely antithetical uh, to true Christianity. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about the Christian left, Maybe we should look the other direction. Is is the right right? The right's got problems of its own, and I, I try to be fair to that in this book, The Christian Left, and we have a whole chapter devoted to that. And, of course, I pepper other things throughout the book, too. And and even in the conclusion of the book, you know, I present some of the things that I'm concerned about, and that is some of the allegiances uh, that the right politically had to make in order to really compete in recent elections. And there's a lot of um, – we see a lot of godless conservatives, and just because somebody is – you know, although I think that conservative policy aligns more with Christian doctrine, it doesn't mean that everybody who calls themselves a conservative is necessarily a believer. And so you know, we have to find a way to separate um, uh, you know, what is Christian and what is, what is conservative politically and make sure that we don't just allow the, the policies and the belief system of the conservative parties uh, to, to sort of find their way as new Christian dogma. Uh, and and usurp some of the you know existing orthodoxy that we have there. So that's a careful balance. Uh, there's certainly some other things we need to watch out for, but uh, a, a lot of that you know we're seeing strawman arguments by the left of things like Christian nationalism, which which I don't think is is near uh, the problem or really an issue uh, at all compared to uh, the way it's being addressed. I think it's just one more talking point to villainize uh, those who are on the right. Mm-hmm. Lucas Miles has been my guest, and his book is called The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church, and this book will help equip you with an understanding of the issues that are facing the church today and help you become empowered to uh, elevate God's truth, justice, and wisdom. Lucas, thanks for coming on. Love to have you back. I appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Lucas Miles has been my guest. Once again, the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Show with Bill Arno. 
Kim Katola is author of Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion, and one of the most gifted and talented broadcasters and communicators in the business. And she's joining me this afternoon. Kim, welcome. Hey, Bill. It's been too long. Nice to talk to you. It's been really too long. I need to get a quick update with you personally. Where are you right now? And are you in Minnesota or in Georgia? Where are you? I'm uh, in Arizona on my way to Minnesota. I'll be be there this summer helping out with grandbabies a lot, a lot. I'm sort of resting up now for that prospect. Yeah. I forgot you. I forgot you're spending time in Arizona now. So that shame on me for not remembering that. No, that's okay. We relocated last year and, um, it's very hot. It's yes. really hot. So I'm looking forward to getting to Minnesota. Yeah, it's beautiful here. Just so you know, you're going to love it mm. when you get here. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm always curious to find out what the most uh, important and relevant news is going on in, in pro-life issues. And you've got uh, several topics to talk about today, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, there's an interesting uh, Handmaid's Tale episode that I would love for you to talk about. The Handmaid's Tale, in case you're not familiar with that, it's based on a book that Margaret Atwood wrote a long time ago, I think in the 80s, and it was turned into a series maybe two years ago, maybe starting in 2018. And, you know, the premise is that in the dystopian future, women are no longer able to have any reproductive agency. So, Hmm. you know, women who are rich are married and don't have children. They have handmaids. And handmaids have no say over their own fertility. They're forced into birth. And so somehow this show has placed itself in modern days, Bill, to make it this leap of logic to say that somehow our culture is forcing women into birthing children that they don't wish to have, (laughs) which is absurd. Uh, Anyway, so now they have a new storyline attacking the pro-life pregnancy center and Mm -hmm. the pregnancy help movement. And it's really despicable because it's just a lie. It's, you know, there's a character who wants a medical abortion and she has to, you know, she ends up in a pregnancy center instead of an abortion business. And, you know, she's given wrong information. She's shamed by a staff person. She's given, you know, medically inaccurate data about abortion and pregnancy and then she leaves without the health care that she needs bill and it's like okay first of all if you if you actually check the evaluations of women and couples seen in pregnancy help centers around the country you'll find that the overwhelming response is positive over 90 percent positives because this idea that, you know, there's proselytizing or there's pressure or there's inaccurate medical information being dispensed is just not true. I don't know if it ever was true, but I can tell you, you know, as a person who has been affiliated with a number of pregnancy centers, the standard of care is high. There's a, a lot of training that it has to happen, and all of the training is geared toward helping a woman make a, an informed choice. You know, and so, of course, there are going to be some women who will choose an abortion. And every pregnancy center, again, that I've ever been associated with has, you know, said to those women, we certainly hope you'll return. You know, we honor your decision with your life. And, you know, we want to offer you an alternative, but there's no coercion. There's no lying. There's none of this nonsense that's being presented in this show. So. Mm-hmm. 
Don't buy it. It's fake news. Yeah. If I could quote someone. <laughs> I know. So this narrative that The Handmaid's Tale is putting out, I would imagine Planned Parenthood is celebrating that. Oh, they love it. I'm sure they gave script help. You know, I mean, we know that, uh, for example, when the show Scandal with Kerry Washington had an abortion storyline there, uh, I don't know if she was the executive producer or the writer of the episode, Shonda Rhimes is a board member of Planned Parenthood nationally, you know. And so, yes, whenever there is media messaging, they go to Planned Parenthood, they go to NARAL. Samantha B. we may have talked about her when she did a hit piece on pregnancy centers on her short-lived, ridiculously unfunny satire show, news show, you know, they just get the talking points. And so they just put it out there that this is what's happening at pregnancy centers. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm sure Planned Parenthood had something to do with it, although I haven't, I haven't found the evidence of that yet. But, you know, I'm still looking, I'm still looking, I'm sure if we scratch the surface hard enough, we will find that the uh, partnership is there. Because this Speaking of handmaids, this this production is serving as a handmaid for the abortion industry's message, which is that you know abortion empowers women, and anything that would seek to tell a woman that abortion is not best for her is you know somehow evil and nefarious and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the thing about it is, Bill, when pregnancy centers offer women an alternative. Uh, they're also offering them the truth about what actually happens in a medical abortion and what the risks really are. You're you're really not going to hear those things from Planned Parenthood. Plan and Planned Parenthood. Why why does even why does Planned Parenthood even have a dog in this race? I mean, if this is reproductive health care, women have an OBGYN that they go to, right? If they're really talking about family planning and family health, and most people are not aware of the fact that. of OBGYNs have been asked about abortion by their patients. Only 14% of OBGYNs will perform abortions. And you wonder why that is? Well, because, of course, they're trained that in every pregnancy they have two patients, mother and child. You know, and so to perform an abortion goes against all their training. And they they know that that it's not safe and it's not healthy. And it's nothing that, you know, they want to associate themselves with. And so spend your time watching something besides The Handmaid's Tale and watch it with a mind for the truth if you do check that thing out. Mm -hmm. Kim, contrary to popular belief, a growing body of evidence indicates that most abortions in America involve coercion. Those in positions of power, authority, or influence may apply pressure, blackmail, deceptive or violence or all of the above to coerce or even force an unwanted abortion. That comes from an article that I can't cite who wrote it, but I'd like you to respond to that. Well, David Reardon with the Elliott Institute has done uh, work on the on the coercion aspect of abortion. And his website is, I think it's called The Unchoice, where you can learn a lot about coerced abortion. Uh, yeah, theunchoice.com. And, you know, he, he puts up a handy legal definition of coercion from the law dictionary. And it's compulsion, force, duress, maybe actual, direct or positive, where physical force is put upon someone to compel them to do something against their will, or implied, maybe legal, maybe constructive, where the relation of the parties is such that one is under subjection to the other and is thereby constrained, 
so that his free will, you know, he's not allowed to do what his or her, he or she, what their free will would compel them to do otherwise. So it's easy to see how that plays out, Bill, in the relationship between, for example, a teenage girl and her parents. Mm-hmm. You will not live in this house if you come home pregnant. You know, you will not be able to stay in this home if you carry this pregnancy forward. Um, it happens very often in relationships. I will leave you if you carry this pregnancy forward. You know, say men of all ages to women of all ages. These things actually represent coercion. When someone is exercising their power in a relationship to, you know, take away the other person's will, and, you know, they the, the, the person being coerced would have to sacrifice the relationship in order, you know, to maintain it, sacrifice, you know, her free will, often will sacrifice her free will instead. And the statistics you cite, I think, are really eye-opening because most people don't have any appreciation of the fact that this talking point of it being a woman's choice uh, does not reflect the reality of what happens in abortion today. Um, other research shows, Bill, as many as two-thirds of women who have an abortion are doing it to, to preserve an important relationship. Mm. And the most influential people are the men, you know, the partners involved, followed closely by parents. And, you know, another aspect of coercion, Bill, might be your church family. Uh, it might be that you're a Christian and you cannot show up as an unmarried woman with the pregnancy in your social circle because of your, you know, Christian beliefs. Coercion happens broadly. And I think that the reason why that's so important for us to know is that if we are against abortion, we have to be in favor of supporting a woman who may be coerced. She may not even want to tell you. She may not realize she's being coerced. But maybe we have to take the time to have that conversation and uh, be the one to offer support and be that one to offer, you know, a true alternative. Because, um, you know, Coercion can and does escalate, and often, uh, I mean, I think we've discussed in the past, Bill, that you know the most vulnerable time for a woman for homicide is when she's pregnant in our country. Um, <laughs> partners do become violent if a woman refuses to abort. It can be an extremely dangerous decision for her to make. Uh, in addition to you know a tough one that may cost her some relationships. The other thing we see, though, Bill, especially with with younger girls. You know, and you'll often hear the girls say something like, oh, my parents will kill me if they find out. You know, the parents may be very opposed, you know, very disappointed that their daughter is pregnant. They may not know that she was sexually active. But so many will come around. So many can be, you know, shown that it's a a courageous and mature decision for a young woman to make. And that as a family, they can face this unintended pregnancy together. And I think that, you know, this is where the church really shines. So this is where we get a chance to be the church. <laughs> mm-hmm. Women and others hurt by abortion are often at a loss for words to describe the experience. Words that do come up often are silenced, nightmare, humiliating, degraded, dismissed, part of me died. And ironically, I was never given a choice. Wow. Well, some- you know, some of those fit for my situation, Bill, and I don't, it's really important for recovering after abortion that we're able to access our grief as well as our guilt. 
You know, and I think uh, guilt is almost universal, even if a woman was, you know, forced violently to abort. Still, we know as mothers that we are the last line of defense for our children. In my case, it was more of a passively going along with what others wanted me to do. And I'm responsible for that. I take accountability for that. But the decision itself was not mine. I didn't pay for it, and it was not mine. And so, um, again, it just I think it's really important for us to understand that, especially if you hate the idea of abortion and you listen to this rhetoric that it's empowering, you know, it's none of your business, it's a woman's right, and all of these things, and you imagine that women are carrying this attitude around, in my experience, certainly helping women who are seeking recovery, uh, almost no one carried that attitude into it. Almost all of the women said, I would not have done that had I felt I had some other choice. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll point out a couple of other things, Kim, and you can respond. There was a mother turned away from a homeless shelter unless she would have an abortion. Wow. Um, maybe there's an abuser who seeks an abortion to cover up his crimes. And yes. then if a, a mother... Uh, takes her daughter into a clinic saying, ignore her if she gets a little teary. That's unbelievable coercion. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. And, you know, I think the live action team did a great job when they brought um, a girl posing as a 13-year-old with a 30-year-old man. And it was clear, you know, in the in the scenario they were proposing to Planned Parenthood, I think it was Planned Parenthood, I'm pretty sure it was, um, you know, that he was, that this, the, this was trafficking. He was prostituting this girl and he wanted the abortion so he could get her back to business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Planned Parenthood, uh, I don't think they, maybe it was a facility that, that didn't offer abortions, but they they made a referral. They didn't intervene. They didn't call the authorities. They didn't try to locate the girl's parents. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> It's horrific, and it absolutely there, – there is a huge connection between abortion and trafficking. You know, I mean, girls and women who are being trafficked are being forced into abortion every day. And, you know, these are things that we just don't think about but that are a big part of the reality of what legal abortion has wrought. It's legal, and if you think that there are some who are not willing to exploit that legality – for unethical and illegal purposes, you're just not aware of the full scope of the problem. Mm-hmm. Kim, let me take a break. Kim Cattola is my guest. We'll uh, be back in 90 seconds. I'm getting to talk to a friend today. I love that part. Kim Cattola is my guest. You remember her from Cradle My Heart, which was on Faith Radio for a long time, and also her broadcasting career, which has been spanning 30 years. So, Kim, I'm reading something about what the Tennessee governor, um, Bill Lee, signed, recognizing humanity of babies killed in abortions. Say more about that. It's kind of an amazing law. It is. 
Bill, because, you know, right now under law, uh, children before their birth are not people. They don't have a right to life. And so there are, Tennessee joins 11 other states. I'm pretty sure uh, it, the laws are being enacted, you know, rapidly since 2016. Um, but these states are recognizing, even if the child was not recognized as a person before their lives were ended in death, they can be treated with dignity. And so, yes, Tennessee has said it, that they will require the dignified burial or cremation of aborted babies' bodies. Mm-hmm. And just that word, Bill, you know, the fact that babies have bodies before they're born, when they're, you know, the I think the average age at abortion is 12 weeks. Most abortions happen between 10 and 12 weeks. And you know, uh, they sell women the idea that it's not a baby yet, that it's just tissue. And, of course, the abortion industry and their advocates will talk about, you know, tissue. And uh, these are babies' bodies that we're talking about. At 12 weeks, a baby's body could fit inside the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. And we'll have all of the, you know, uh, development to let you recognize this is a human being, face, fingers, toes, a spine, you know. And um, so Tennessee has said, uh, absent a law like this, Bill, what happens is the, the babies are treated as medical waste and disposed of. Um, when Minnesota enacted the nation's first fetal uh, remains law, uh the people who who pressed for that discovered that there was an abortion business that was putting them in the public sewage. You Thanks. know, they weren't they were not properly handling this as medical waste because that should never happen. That's I mean that's not even that goes against every principle of public health, right? Even if it's even if you're not going to dignify it, this is human waste, and you're going to call it human waste and still not properly dispose of it is really appalling. But mm-hmm. the pro-life legislation is one of the ways that lawmakers are hoping to provide this dignity to the unborn children. And so um, in Tennessee, uh, the uh, legislators who are, are working on this definitely support an unborn baby's right to life and have said, you know, while it's disheartening that we have to propose legislation to ensure the body will be treated with the same respect, respect that is, as any other human being. Um, it's, you know, it's good that the support is there for this to happen. Um, and, of course, you know, the abortion industry is pushing back against it uh, because, as we learned in 2015, you know, they have a, a profit motive um, in trafficking those fetal remains for medical research and for other purposes. Um, and, but, the, you know, the, the reality is most women have no idea what even happens to the remains because they're not told that this is a human life that requires any sort of special care or handling. The Atlantic had a really interesting piece a year or two ago uh, written by Emma Green about this. And I think she handled the, the question with a lot of delicacy you know, talking about she went and talked with funeral directors and those who, you know, work at a, a crematorium. And and they said, you know, we'll do what we are asked to do because this is what we do. 
And, you know, most most funerals will have a, a designated area where children are laid to rest. And some do have a memorial area, even absent, you know, the body for a funeral or a burial. There will be a memorial area of a, of a cemetery for, you know, a place to remember the lives of children lost to abortion. There's a national memorial for that purpose in Chattanooga, Tennessee as well. But I think this is really important because to do this, um, again, restores that humanity, not only to the children, but to us as the human family, you know, in charge of how we're going to behave (laughs) towards Mm -hmm. one another, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that's it's sobering. Thank you for sharing that, um, Kim. What what are how are the pro-lifers doing in the fight to protect women from these dangerous abor- abortion drugs? Well, you know they're proliferating. Those drugs are proliferating online, and there are many groups that are at trying to advance that proliferation, trying to have all restrictions removed trying to give women the idea that it's just, you know, taking a pill to restart your period. Um, we know that women have died using the abortion pills because, you know, there's there's a risk of being unable to stop the bleeding once it starts. Uh, but in, in the pro-life pregnancy help community, the abortion pill reversal has had a great deal of success. And, you know, for a medical abortion, you have to, you take two pills and you take them at two different times. If you go for a reversal, you, you'll be given something that will stop the action of the first pill. And we've seen several children, you know, successfully carry to term, pregnancies carry to term after an abortion pill reversal. So I think it's important that women would know that. You know, because many times you'll take that first pill and then you'll think, wait, I didn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, need to ma- I need to make a different decision. And there is help through the pregnancy help community to, to reverse that and to, you know, bring about a different outcome. This is all um, so difficult. This, this news is, I appreciate you bringing it, Kim, and I always love hearing your take on it and you process it so beautifully. But this is all, again, I'm reminded how difficult all this is. Well, and it's important that we think about it, Bill, because under President Biden, the FDA removed the in-person requirement for dispensing the abortion pill mm-hmm. because of COVID, right? Because of COVID. Oh, okay. We're going to do telemed. But there are states where you, you can't do that. You can't dispense this via video or a telephone call. You know, it, it is important to take a woman's vitals, to know her overall health, to know her level of maturity, whether she's going to seek help in time if something goes wrong with this. And if anybody's curious what this actually is like, you know, people will have an idea that somehow a medical abortion just taking pills is less gruesome, less difficult, less traumatic than a surgical abortion, which involves a DNC. You know, uh, I would urge you to see the movie Unplanned because Abby Johnson underwent both procedures, and there's a, a very vivid portrayal of what happened in her medical abortion, and it shouldn't happen to anyone. It was extremely traumatic. And the thing that's, that's, you know, that I know firsthand from hearing it from women, particularly, Bill, young women are so vulnerable to this. They may not even have told anyone that they're pregnant. They went and got the pills, 
Now, how hard is this? All you do is, you know, do a Zoom call with some some abortion business, Mm -hmm. right? And you go pick up the pills. No one even knows that you're taking these pills. They do trigger a great deal of bleeding. Now, you're bleeding by yourself. No one even knows what's happening with you. And the part that becomes very difficult is, okay, we're going to pass this baby. Now what does she do? No one's prepared her. Wow. No one has told her, again, how do I dispose of these remains? What do I, you know? And so it's um, it's a very harrowing experience. The women that I've spoken with actually were in recovery settings, Bill. You know, this, this among other experiences, um, led to, you know, drug and alcohol abuse mm-hmm. of, of women trying to overcome that trauma. Uh, but the Biden administration wants that access put into, you know, permanently uh, available once the pandemic ends. Yeah. You can just, you know, have a video conference and get those pills and be on your merry way. Yeah, Kim, thank you so much for doing the show. When you get back to Minneapolis, come into the studio, talk some more. I will. Good things are happening in the pregnancy health community, and I guess that's why the abortion industry is targeting them. So be, take heart. We will. <laughs> that, take heart. That wraps up our show for the day. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.